So um, you'll see from our decor here that we are now officially prepared for Christmas. Anybody got their Christmas tree up at home? Oh, a few people. You're obviously the really super organized ones. Well done, you. The earliest we ever put ours up was in 1992. We had our Christmas tree up in February, and uh, mainly because we hadn't taken it down from the previous Christmas, and ended up having to take it down because uh, a local policeman knocked on our door. Uh, I think he thought we were an old couple that had died and just left the tree in the window. We've never been quite so organized since then. Anyway, as I said, we're beginning our countdown to Christmas today. Look at this amazing backdrop. Isn't it wonderful? And you'll have seen uh, in those amazing words that that is our sort of the theme that we're giving our celebrations this year, the theme of I wonder. And I don't think it means I wonder if Father Christmas is going to come down that chimney and bring a load of presents. But the Christmas story, as we know, although we can be very over-familiar with it, is one that draws a huge amount of wonder, isn't it? From Mary, from the shepherds, from the angels, uh, from all kinds of people, uh, men and women down the ages. I hope it draws still wonder from us. Wonder is meant to be part of our response to God, isn't it? Wonder is meant to be at the heart of worship. Matt Redman says that worship thrives on wonder. Wonder is one of the things that God looks for in his children, in his people. There was a chap called Jacob Needleham who uh, was around in 1975 when Apollo 17 uh, was first launched into space. And he wrote about wonder in in a rather interesting way from his experience. And he said this from being there that night. It was a night launch. There were hundreds of cynical reporters all over the lawn, drinking beer, joking and waiting for this 35 story high rocket. The countdown came and then the launch. The first thing that you see is the extraordinary orange light, which is just at the limit of what you can look at. Everything is illuminated with this light. And then this thing starts whooshing up in silence because it takes a few seconds for the sound to really come across. And then you hear this huge whoosh and it enters right into you. That's what his experience was, this huge power and noise entering right into him. You can practically hear jaws dropping, he wrote. The sense of wonder filled the whole place and filled everyone there as this thing went up and up and up. And the first stage ignites this beautiful blue flame and then it becomes like a star. But we realized that there were hundreds of humans looking at it and there were humans on it. And then there was total silence. And people got up and quietly started helping each other. They were kind. They opened doors for each other. They looked at one another speaking quietly and speaking interestedly. They'd suddenly become moral people because of the sense of wonder. The experience of wonder had made them moral. Now, I don't know how moral exactly they'd become, but what he was describing was a sense and an experience of incredible wonder that ended up having a transformational impact on the people that were there uh, that night. A bunch of unbelieving reporters, a bunch of people who experienced wonder firsthand, probably for all kinds of reasons, because it was the most extraordinary scientific feat that was sending humans into space, probably because, as this guy said, he realized his own sense of incredible smallness uh, in comparison to the uh, magnificence and and the size of the event that was going on.
And not only have we been created as humans with the capacity to experience wonder, it's meant to be part of the foundation of our relationship with God. Wonder is meant to be part of the foundation of who we are as followers of Jesus. I'm sure it was one of the beautiful childlike qualities that Jesus had in his mind when he said we had to become like children in order to enter the kingdom of God. Children are full of wonder, aren't they? At sort of so many things, at at most things when they're very little. It's part, you know, that sense of wonder is part of the heart posture, I believe, that positions us to experience and inherit the kingdom. We all start life full of wonder because we start life as children. And I believe this Christmas time, you know, as you've seen, our theme is I wonder. I believe that God wants us to recover our wonder where we've, where we've lost it or where it's become diminished or where it's become a bit tarnished or faded for all kinds of reasons. And one of the things that I want to talk about this morning that can suffocate wonder is disappointment. Disappointment has the huge potential to diminish our wonder at God. And so as we begin our Advent series this week, I want us to turn to a story in Luke chapter 1. It's at the beginning of the Christmas story. It's only told in the Gospel of Luke. But I wonder if it's there, you know, I wonder if it's there for a significant reason. Because it's a story about disappointment and the impact of disappointment. So if you want to open your Bibles... I'm going to read the story uh, of the angel visiting John the Baptist's parents with the news uh, that they have been uh, waiting to hear and probably given up on hearing about the possibility, the probability, the fact that they were going to have a baby. So I'm going to read verses 5 to 20. If you've got a Bible, I think it might come up on the screens. Oh, it's up there now. (laughs) So, in the time of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. That's a bit of a key statement. We're going to come back to that. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple before the Lord and to burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, is going to bear you a son and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and he'll be a delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, what we've been hearing about. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born and he'll bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He'll go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, and he'll make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. 
The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you the good news. And now you will be silent and you will not be able to speak until this day happens because you didn't believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. I wonder how many of you would like an encounter with an angel. Yeah? Quite a few nods. That's good. I know I would. You know, I imagine he was kind of eight, nine, ten foot, you know, sparkling, glistening. You know, he was obviously super impressive. You know, he wasn't a hidden angel. I know some of us have stories of believing that we've met angels, but he was there in his sort of glory because Zechariah, we are told, was afraid. He clearly looked like this powerful giant that angels often are. And, uh, You know, I would love to see an angel like that, but especially if he was bringing good news like he brought, like Gabriel brought that day, especially if he was bringing the answer to my biggest prayer that I had been praying for years and years and years. This visit by this angel was no small thing. I think it was probably a bit like, you know, the rocket taking off uh, that those guys witnessed in 1975. It was on a par with that. And uh, as I said, Zechariah, you know, the text tells us that he was, he was profoundly impacted. He was overwhelmed in one sense with this, with this experience. Because in that moment, probably he was conscious of his smallness and he knew that this, this angel had power from God. But it's okay, because the angel has come with a present and he puts Zechariah's uh, sort of fears uh, to, to rest. He's come with good news. I was um, in town with Tim a couple of weeks ago and uh, I approached um, a lady uh, as, as we were walking up the prom uh, and asked her if I could pray for her. And uh, you know, I just said to her, I wanted to pray a blessing on her. And her immediate reaction was defensive. And uh, she said to me, why? What, you know, what is your expectation of, of what I'm going to say? What is your expectation of what's going to happen? And uh, I said, well, I don't know. I think I have an expectation that you'd either say yes or you'd say no. And in that, mo- <laughs> and in that moment, she sort of smiled and relaxed and her defenses dropped. And she, you know, she shared something deeply personal that I was then able to pray for her. You know, I think we're often very defensive, aren't we, when we're confronted by um, a stranger and we've got no idea uh, what they're going to say, what they're going to do. And Zechariah was in this position. He was understandably afraid and concerned about what the angel was doing there. But the angel has brought him, Gabriel has brought him incredible news that he and Elizabeth finally were going to have a baby. I mean, think about it. This moment was one of those moments in life, probably, possibly the biggest moment in his life. It's the kind of story, isn't it, that you can dine out on you know, for years and years after the event. If if YouTube had been around and he'd, you know, filmed his story and put it on YouTube, it would probably have got millions of views. This was a massive moment. But here's the shocking thing. He was unable to respond with awe and with wonder and with praise and with gratitude and with worship. He was unable to respond to the goodness and to the kindness and to the grace and the generosity and the faithfulness and the sovereignty of God. He was unable to respond to the good news like that because disappointment had got a grip on his heart. Luke's statement in verse 7, I said we come back to it. One 
defining fact about Elizabeth and Zechariah. They were childless and they were old. And that small sentence, doesn't it, contains years of a painful history. No doubt when they got married, when they'd sort of been waved off into the sunset uh, by their friends and family on their wedding day, they would have taken with them all the hopes and desires and dreams for a future that all newly married couples take with them. My you know, daughter got married, as you know, three months ago. You know, we're full of dreams, aren't we? We're full of dreams and expectation and hopes and desires at that point in life. And, and for them, probably their overarching desire and dream would have been to be able to have a family. You know, in those days, it was, it was a disgrace, actually, not to be able to continue the family name and have children. But over, you know, the reality of, of the years passing, they began to recognize that those dreams and those desires were not going to happen. And months and months of, you know, a pregnancy not happening turned into years and years. No sign of a baby. And then Elizabeth would have gone through the menopause and then no sign of a baby would have become no possibility of a baby. And if that wasn't enough, they would have had to endure the shame, no doubt, and the disgrace and the judgment of their friends who may well have thought, well, Maybe, you know, that's because of the way you've lived, you know, that God hasn't been able to reward you with a baby because you've been living in some way that is displeasing to him. Interestingly, the text takes, point, uh, takes pains to point out, Luke is very keen to point out that they were good people. They were good people. They loved God. They prayed. They were obedient. They were righteous. Luke is very keen to point out, in case we were in any doubt, that their inability to conceive was not... Uh, connected to the way they had lived. A life shaped by disappointment. Proverbs 13 verse 12 says this, we'll be familiar with it. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Disappointment has the power to lead to a sickness of heart. And you don't need me to tell you that disappointment is part of life, isn't it? You know, whether it's the smaller disappointments of sitting at a meal table or, you know, sitting at a restaurant with friends or family and they've ordered the thing and when it arrives, (laughs) you look at it and you're disappointed because actually what they've ordered is the thing that actually you would have liked to eat and what you've ordered isn't quite what you'd anticipated or doesn't taste quite as good as you'd hoped. There are the really small disappointments in life. There are the slightly bigger disappointments that are a bit more significant when, you know, you don't get the promotion that you'd hoped for or... uh, You know, you get a horrible bill from uh, your car MOT and suddenly you need to replace a gearbox and the bank statement doesn't make it look like it's going to be possible. Or you've been saving up to redecorate part of your house and then you have a horrible roof bill and that money is snapped up and you can't do the thing that you'd wanted to. Or the disappointments of friends letting you down. Or um, just stuff not working out in the way that we've anticipated. There are the bigger disappointments, aren't there, that aren't as significant as just, you know, the short term, I haven't ordered the right meal. But then, and many of us know this, there are the really big disappointments in life. The really big disappointments that have the potential to leave a huge legacy when a relationship breaks down permanently or when a relationship doesn't happen or when a healing doesn't come, or when a miracle that we've been contending for and believing for doesn't happen, or when your life suddenly changes direction, having been going this way, it's going that way, 
or when your dreams aren't fulfilled, your prayers aren't answered. And we can end up getting stuck like Zechariah. It's not inevitable, but there's the potential for us to get stuck. People disappoint us, don't they? Or people have the potential to disappoint us. Circumstances disappoint us. Let's acknowledge it again this morning. Life is hard. Disappointment comes. And if, you're, you know, if you haven't experienced disappointment for a while in your life, then don't take it for granted. Don't take it for granted. Live in gratitude to God that actually you don't know disappointment at the moment. And while there's nothing wrong with fearing, uh, feeling or experiencing disappointment, we do need to be aware, and this passage shows us, that disappointment has the potential to be dangerous. God created us with emotions. That's why we're able to feel disappointed. It's why acknowledging disappointment is important. But there's a difference between feeling disappointed and being disappointed. There's a difference between feeling disappointed and being disappointed. One of my kids, a couple of them didn't pass their, uh, their driving test for the first time, but one of them, when uh, they failed for the first time, as small as, as they were processing this um, disappointment in the kitchen with me, a small but significant phrase slipped out of um, their mouth. And they said, well, God obviously doesn't want me to pass. A small transient bit of disappointment, but that was what came out as they were processing it. And as I listened to the sort of thought process that was coming out of their mouth, and uh, it's such, a, such an easy thing to understand in, the, in that moment, in the intensity of that feeling. The Lord reminded me again in that moment, and you know, I'm sure we'll be aware of it when, when we sort of articulate what's going on inside us. He reminded me again of the vulnerability of our hearts when we're experiencing disappointment for the enemy to sow his seeds of doubt about the goodness and the kindness and the generosity and the faithfulness of God. It's in those moments that we are really vulnerable. About, you know, we begin, or we have the potential to begin to question his willingness to fight for us, his willingness to help us, his willingness and his desire to come through for us. And we, we, can, we can so easily sort of make the transition towards believing that everything that happens in life is God's will. I failed my driving test, so obviously God didn't want me to pass. You know, that's just Christian fatalism, isn't it? And the enemy, the enemy loves to get us to focus on what God isn't doing, on what God hasn't done. He loves to get us to question the goodness of God. That was what happened in the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? God's withholding something from you. You know, he's not really good. He's holding something back for you. So take a step. Look after yourselves. Do something independent of God because you can't trust that he's really, really good. And we are particularly vulnerable to that when we are disappointed. Now, some, of course, some of us are more prone to that kind of thought process and to those kind of doubts than others. Let's just acknowledge that. and Let's not try and defend it. But actually, here's Zechariah, and he's a priest, and he's loved God, and he's been obedient, and he's served in the house of God forever, you know, forever since he was younger. And he's stuck in disappointment. And if those seeds are left unchecked, you know, we can end up in a place that we don't want to be in. A few years ago, when we were living in Clarence Square, many of you know that we used to live over there. <clears throat> and uh, on one particular morning, 
I began to notice these tiny sort of things up on these high ceilings, up in, up in the corners. They looked like little staples, and I, just, I knew there was some kind of bug. And I thought, oh, you know, bugs, summer, they'll go, they'll die in the winter, and I ignored them. And it turns out they were carpet moths. <laughs> and some of you know about carpet moths, but carpet moths are really small, and you don't really see them until they've laid their eggs and, you know, multiplied and left you with more nightmares to deal with. And uh, if you ignore them when they first appear, you end up basically with this plague on your hands. And when I eventually got the local pest man in, and he brought one of his sticky bits of paper with some kind of pheromone on that tells you how many, you know, what the level of your, your infestation is, he walked through my hall with this sort of piece of sticky pheromone paper, and all these moths just appeared from who knows where, you know, flying around. And we had, we had ended up with an infestation because I'd ignored these pesky little things, thinking they were absolutely harmless. And I think disappointment can be a bit like that. We can ignore it, thinking that it's going to pass. And actually, unless we you know, deal with it, unless we address it with God, actually, the enemy can use it to mutate into something much more significant that can then push us towards cynicism. It can push us towards unbelief. It can push us towards uh, doubt into bitterness, into um, just a lack of expectation, actually, about what God can do, will do, is going to do. Artie Kendall. I love Artie Kendall. Does anyone here watch TBN? Yeah, Christian TV station. He's often on there. He's such an amazing man. He was at New Wine last year. So full of wisdom. He says this, sooner or later, every believer goes through a time when God seems to let them down. It's interesting, isn't it? Sooner or later, every believer goes through a time when God seems to let them down. And 90% of those people, I don't know where he got that statistic from, but let's just go lots. (laughs) 90% fail to break through the betrayal barrier after feeling abandoned by God. And as a result, this bitter experience hinders their faith. Because what happens is that we start protecting our hearts, don't we? We start protecting our hearts from more disappointment, or we have the potential to. And so what that looks like is that we we end up finding it harder to trust. We take fewer risks. We don't step out quite as much. We don't offer to pray for breakthroughs in other people's situations quite as often because we could be disappointed, or God could actually disappoint you, and we risk being let down again, so maybe safer not to. And slowly over time our expectations begin to diminish, and so does our hope with them. And that is Zechariah's story. He was unable to respond, amazing as it is, to this angel and to the declaration and to the promise and to the gift. He was unable to respond with gratitude and worship because his disappointment had got a grip on his heart. And instead, he responds with doubt. What does he say to the angel? How can I be sure? I mean, on the face of it, that looks like an innocent question, doesn't it? On the face of it, to me, anyway, it looks like an innocent question. But what he's really saying is, how can I know that I won't be disappointed again? How can I know if I put my trust in you that God is going to fulfill this, I'm not going to be disappointed again? That if I get my hopes up, they're not going to be dashed. How do you know? if your heart is harboring disappointment in any way? Well, one of the ways is to listen out for that question. How can I be sure? How can I be sure that God loves me? 
How can I be sure that you're going to guide me, Lord? How can I be sure that you're going to provide for me? How can I be sure that you're listening to my prayers? How can I be sure that it's you speaking? How can I be sure that you're going to look after me? How can I be sure that you're really for me? How can I be sure that when I step out and you know, speak to people or offer to pray for people, how can I be sure that you're going to come through? If that question's a question that's familiar to you, maybe ask the Lord to show you whether there's disappointment that's settled in your heart. Another way of recognizing the weight of disappointment, of unresolved disappointment. It's not that disappointment is wrong, it's unresolved disappointment. Another way of recognizing it is by looking at your level of expectation about what God's going to do through you, for you. What's your level of expectation like about the great things that God has promised to do? And sometimes that shows up, doesn't it, in our prayer life, because prayer is a hope-based activity. We need faith to pray thing, to, for, for God to do things that we're not seeing and actually are out of the bounds of, of normality. You know, we're the people, aren't we, who know God and belong to God, who should carry expectation into every place that we go. God has a solution for the things that we are confronted by around us. And we, as his children, as his people, should be the ones that arrive in a scenario, in, a, you know, in an environment with the power and the hope and the expectation to see those scenarios changed. But we can't carry that hope if disappointment has begun to you know, settle like a wet blanket on the fire in our hearts. And again, that's why the enemy uses disappointment to get to our faith. Because actually, if he can get to our faith, then he can get to the way that we can impact the world around us. We're the ones that God has chosen to carry his expectation, his power, his hope of what we can do. So we open up a way for him to move by the way that we step in. Zechariah's response, it wasn't a response of expectation. It was a response of doubt. How can I be sure? How can I be sure? I can't take you at your word. And the angel's response is, because I've told you. I stand in the presence of God and I've told you. That should be enough. But it wasn't for him. He still believed in God, but he was struggling to really trust God. He found it easy to believe his doubts than to believe in the goodness of God. Have you stopped expecting great things of God? What's your level of expectation like as we sit here on December the 2nd in the places where you work, in your families, you know, amongst your friends, in the communities where you live? What are you expecting? Here's another sort of sign that disappointment may have become a bit entrenched within us. You might struggle to praise God from the depths of your heart. You know, this was Zechariah's challenge, wasn't it? It wasn't praise that came out of his mouth. It was a question. He wasn't able to respond in joy. And disappointment can keep us, you know, in that place of really struggling to praise God from our hearts. Not from our lips, but from our hearts. It can keep us, actually, from enjoying God. Because we tend to take a step back from intimacy with him when we're harboring disappointment. And for Zechariah, although God was so gracious and so merciful and fulfilled his promise of the baby anyway, he missed out on a whole pile of the blessings that went with that, didn't he? Because the angel 
you know, said, well, you're not going to be able to speak. So for nine and a half months, he couldn't chatter to his friends about what God had done. He, you know, he couldn't make his video for YouTube. He couldn't encourage his wife. He couldn't be excited with Elizabeth as she actually got pregnant. He couldn't encourage her in labor. He couldn't go and announce to his friends when John was born that, you know, this incredible miracle had happened. He wasn't able to do any of that because God silenced him. Yes, he gave him back his voice, but he was robbed of some of the blessings of the incredible promise of God because of his disappointment. So really quickly, just a few thoughts about how we take on disappointment to prevent it getting a grip in us. Firstly, I think we have to make a decision every time, and it's one of those recurring things, isn't it? Because life throws stuff at us that has the potential you know, to leave us feeling disappointment. Just make a decision. I find myself having to make a decision over and over again. I'm not, I'm going to resist this. I'm going to take it on. I'm not just going to leave my carpet moths there in my heart. And actually, sometimes it's a battle, but we're more likely to fight battles if we make a decision to fight them than if we just kind of lay down and wait and hope that one day, you know, it'll just disappear. Hope and wonder never allow pain to have the last word and we may have to fight and may have to decide that that's going to be a battle for us to refuse to partner with disappointment and let it become a close friend secondly be completely honest with God psalm 62 verse 8 one of my favorite verses David says pour out your heart before the Lord pour it out don't pretend I love Alan Scott says you know there's a huge difference between hype and hope Hope is able to be real about what's in front of it. You know, Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. He didn't pretend. You know, there wasn't a load of hype in Abraham. He faced facts, but he held on to the promises of God. Be completely real with God. Be real with other people. Thirdly, don't ask to understand. You know, I've learned that. Understanding and seeking to understand, seeking explanations from God never gets us anywhere. You know, God doesn't owe us any explanations. And so often we couldn't get our heads around them if he gave them to us. Trust begins where understanding ends. And we have to lay down our desire for explanations and understanding if we're going to move on in the end from disappointment. I think we can sometimes think that we'll get, a, you know, we'll get comfort from understanding. Actually, we get comfort from the comforter. You know, the Holy Spirit is the one who comforts us. Make sure you're more consumed with his promises than your pain. You know, I have a book full of promises of God, you know, and when I lose sight of them because of what I'm wrestling with, particularly if I'm wrestling with disappointment, I go to my book and I open it and I look at the promises of God that are in that book because I can't remember them, bizarrely, because that's one of the things that disappointment does. I can't remember them when I'm wrestling with disappointment or when, it, when it's become a big deal in my life. You know, what promises of God are you stewarding you know, what promises of God are you contending to fight for? You know, the Psalms are full of honesty, but David is also, his heart is full of the promises of God and the truth about God's goodness and his desire to bless. And lastly, keep his praise on your lips. Again, so much easier to say than to do. Habakkuk 3.16 says this, Though the fig tree doesn't bud, Though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord 
my God. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. And you know, there is something so powerful about a sacrifice of praise. And that's what it is, a sacrifice. A sacrifice costs us something. You know, we live in a world that says, if it feels good, do it. And if you don't feel like it, don't do it. And that's what authenticity is. But we belong to a kingdom that's not like the world. And in the kingdom, we offer sacrifices. And it's the sacrifices that we offer that honor and glorify our God. And there are times when we need to make a sacrifice of praise that releases God's power to be able to work in our hearts and release us from what we want releasing from. A line in my devotional this morning said this. I love it. The answer to deep anxiety is deep adoration. We've been singing a lot this morning. They didn't know what I was going to talk about. I didn't know, you know where we were going to start about adoration, about wonder. I think it's also true that the answer to deep disappointment is deep adoration. Not our adoration of God, but his adoration of us. His adoration of us. I believe that God wants to encourage us over this season of Advent to recover our wonder where it has been diminished. But one of the ways that we do that is by focusing on his adoration of us. And as we focus on his adoration of us, as, as, we, as we keep his praise on our lips, then our gift of love becomes, our wonder becomes a response to him. It becomes a response from the heart again to him, which is the greatest gift that we can give him, allowing his love for us to make us glad. So let's be intentional. I really want to encourage us to be intentional and I say this to myself, this Advent season of tackling disappointment, of allowing God to restore our wonder, my wonder, to recover our wonder where it's become diminished and tarnished. And, you know, let's allow this season of Advent, this approach to Christmas, to allow God to remind us as we go through it that he came for us. You know, that's what it's all about, isn't it? He came for us. He loves us. We were made for love. He came to restore us back to him so that our wonder might be restored. So let's stand. We're going to pray. We're going to have to go and collect kids in a few moments, but they went out a bit later this morning. So let's just take these final moments to allow the Holy Spirit <clears throat> to minister in these moments the love and the adoration and the grace of God to us. So you might want to close your eyes. If you're a visitor, this is the way we end our services, just in a slightly messy uh, way. But we love to connect with the Lord and give him the chance to move on our hearts in response to what he's been saying to us throughout the morning. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence here. We thank you for your love for us that brought you from heaven to earth. We thank you that you gave up your palace in heaven, the beauty of heaven. You gave up everything to come to earth, to come in search of us, to come to find us to come to open up a way for us to know your love, to live in your love, to experience your love.
and to share your love. Holy Spirit, would you come and minister your love to us in these moments again in a fresh way. Thank you that that's part of who you are, Lord, the one who ministers and connects us to the love of the Father. Just come. Come in this moment and reconnect us to the love of the Father, to the love of Jesus, to your love, Holy Spirit. And where our wonder, Father, has become tarnished through just the stuff of life, and there'll be many reasons for it, we just ask you in this moment, we invite you in this moment to begin a new work in us to recover our wonder. Lord, it's not something we do in our own strength. It's something we partner with you for. And we want to say to you again, we want to be a people of wonder. We want to be a people who are so easily moved to awe and to worship and to praise and to gratitude and to wonder. Because you are a God of wonder. I just have a, <clears throat> I want to encourage you that if you're here this morning and you just know that you need someone to pray for you because of something that's going on in your life, something that you're longing for, something that you're crying out to God for, I want to encourage you to come down to the front and let someone pray for you. And you don't need, you know, me or anybody else to call out what that is. Just come and allow someone to pray for you, particularly if you're sick or you're unwell or if you're looking for uh, direction in your life, God wants to meet you this morning. I had a particular sense this morning that if you're here and you're struggling with headaches, I believe that God wants to heal you. Uh, so if that's you, just begin to make your way to the front. I had a picture during um, the worship of a fire which was burning very dimly. It was like there were embers in the fire. And uh, I think for some of us, that represents our, our hope or our confidence in the goodness of God. The fire hasn't gone out. Those embers haven't gone out. But you just long for God to breathe on that fire. You need the Holy Spirit to breathe on that fire, to breathe on your hope, to breathe on your expectation of him. And he wants to do that this morning. So if that's you, I want you to come to the front and allow somebody to pray for you. If you resonated with that um, picture of wills and you just, have the, you just know at the moment that you're walking through fire, that that's where God has you, you're walking through fire, you need strength. You need the strength of God. You need his presence with you in the fire to remain there while he does whatever it is that he's doing in your heart and your life. And it's good. Whatever he's doing is good, but you need his strength and his power to stay there. So again, if that's you, I want you to come to the front so that we can pray for you. I also had a sense that there were some of us here this morning and, um, and I was reminded of the story of the prodigal uh, father, I like to call it. 
And it's not that you've, you've run away in rebellion and it's not that you've deliberately gone out into the field, but somewhere along the line, you've drifted from the love of the Father. You've drifted from connection with him. And this morning, there's an invitation for you to come home. The Father's saying, come home, come back to that place of living in my love. Let it be all about my love. So if that's you, you need to take a a journey in your heart. Maybe you need to, to do that up here. And again, let someone pray for you. But maybe you need to do it where you're standing in your heart. You need to decide to take, to turn around and to acknowledge that you've walked away unwittingly from the Father's love and life has become about other things. Life has become about what you do. Life has come about, become about getting through. Life has become about accomplishing and achieving. And God's saying, I want you to return to my love this morning. Jesus, Jesus.